Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction. We were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. In January, the trial of pharmaceutical company Insys Therapeutics began in Boston, where company founder John Kapoor and six former sales directors have been charged with racketeering in a case that alleges they orchestrated a scheme to pay bribes to doctors in exchange for prescribing their high-powered opioid fentanyl spray, known as Subsys, to patients who didn't need it. Between 2012 and 2016, approximately 908 people overdosed and died on Subsys. On today's show, we'll talk about the Insys case, and how Purdue Pharma pled guilty to many of the same misleading sales practices in 2007. Yet, nothing has happened to deter pharmaceutical companies from perpetuating these same sales practices since that time. Joining me today are Palm Beach Post reporters, John Passetti, who's covering the Insys Therapeutics story for The Post, and Pat Beal, who has covered Purdue Pharma extensively. As we begin, John Passetti introduces the Insys Therapeutics case. Insys was a, uh, founded by a uh, kind of a, a pharmaceutical entrepreneur who had had several other companies uh, before Insys. And Insys's chief product was a spray fentanyl. It was really the only fentanyl that you know that you could spray under the tongue uh, for the patient uh, for someone who is. Uh, you know, in severe pain from cancer or on their, you know, last days at a hospice, this would have been, you know, a very good product. Uh, And he enters the market, the fentanyl market, uh, that it's about five or six uh, companies that have, are allowed by the FDA to produce these products, but they're only approved for cancer patients. Subsys was approved by the FDA for late-stage cancer patients. Every prescription drug marketed in the U.S. carries an individual FDA-approved label. While it would be legal for a physician to independently decide to prescribe a drug off-label, it's illegal for the pharmaceutical company to promote off-label uses to prescribers. So Ensys right away knew that there's only a limited number of dying cancer patients that they could target and they weren't going they they weren't going to make a lot of money that way so what they eventually did is bring in uh, one Alec Berlikoff he was a pharmaceutical executive at another fentanyl uh, manufacturer named Cephalon and he had perfected uh, an incentive program for doctors using the speaker program, that's where doctors go and speak on behalf of the product for other doctors to to incentivize them to, to 
prescribe off-label. So the new sales director, hired by Insys, Alex Berlikoff, came from another pharmaceutical company by the name of Cephalon, who is the maker of a lozenger that is indicated and was approved by the FDA for management of breakthrough cancer pain. And Cephalon was fined for off-label slash illegal promotion of the drug in September 2008 while Berlikoff was still there. Within about a year of, of, of the of this fentanyl spray, which was called sepsis, you know, came to market, they brought Berlikoff in and he immediately, uh, you know, starts cleaning house and bringing in a new type of salesperson. Uh, Salespeople that had little or no experience in the pharmaceutical area, salespeople that uh, you know that had that were very young and very good looking on both the male and female parts. He uh, would uh, bring in cocktail waitresses, strippers, models, and then he went to work on the doctors. He had a uh, already a, a few doctors in mind here in. Uh, Palm Beach County, those were his first uh, targets, and he then started moving, and Incis started making, it actually cornered the market on this uh, very limited uh, fentanyl medication area. Next, John talks about titration, and that is the process of determining the medication dose that reduces your symptoms to the greatest possible degree while avoiding as many side effects as possible. When your doctor titrates a dose, he or she is making adjustments to how much medication you're taking. One of the things that Berlikoff uh, insisted that his sales rep push doctors to do was to titrate up the, the dosage for sepsis. And he would... Uh, you know, and he would actually punish the salespeople if they did not push the do- if the doctors were not prescribing the higher doses dosages of this um, drug, uh, and he would uh, you know try to uh, you know motivate them. At, at one sales conference, he uh, donned a substance costume with the purple tights at the uh, with the biggest. Uh, dose written on it and kind of and did it like a rap video to try to get them to uh, go out there and get the doctors to titrate this, you know, medicine up for substance users. Yeah. And I, I want to tell you that the patients that used this drug and, and you know, and, and for off-label purposes for like, I don't know, there's some people who might have had lupus or migraines or back pain or, you know, they were uh, rendered pretty much uh, immobilized. I mean, they, they, this drug is, is for, you know, end-stage cancer pain. So suddenly, you know, housewives that had no idea this was even a, uh, an opioid would become, you know, couldn't get out of bed or would have to crawl to the bathroom. They were so, you know, so drugged up. And they, uh, you know, basically stopped living their life. John talks about how INSYS arranged to have prescriptions delivered to the door of patients who were incapacitated. INSYS had worked with uh, their 
you know, pharmacies, certain pharmacies that have the drug delivered right to their doorstep. So all they had to, you know, so they're, while they're like basically half dead in their, in their bed, you know, the, the drug would just be dropped off right, right at their door. So wow. they never had to even go out and fill it at a pharmacy. The government said it's good old fashioned bribery. So the uh, speaker programs were shams. Uh, the the doctors would go there, get a nice meal. Maybe they'd bring their staff there, and then they would pocket the money. Uh, doctors made, you know, several doctors made over one hundred fifty thousand dollars. Some made over two hundred thousand. One made over two hundred seventy thousand dollars, and uh, then and their speaking engagement opportunities were tied to the number of prescriptions that they wrote. And it wasn't just cash. It was other things that they would uh, also entice these doctors with. Uh, they would uh, find out, you know, what their weaknesses. If it was chocolate, then they told the sales the reps to go get them chocolate. Uh, they took them out to strip clubs. Uh, they... Uh, had a, uh, you know, they hired a dental hygienist, according to a whistleblower complaint, simply to have sex with doctors. That's what it was, to have sex with doctors. John talks about another tactic used by INSIS, and that was hiring family members of some of the physicians that they called on. You know, they would hire family or, or loved ones and, and put them on the payroll. Huh. So they also targeted these doctors, didn't they? They... Uh, looked for doctors that they felt as though they would be able to uh, win over and get them prescribing um, heavily. Alec Berlikoff, you know, had already done this with Cephalon. So he had his, uh, you know, doctors here in South Florida that he knew were already participating in a speaker program for Cephalon. Other doctors they targeted were like the Chicago uh, pill mill doctor, who was already uh, being uh, looked at by law enforcement. So they knew right away that he didn't have any ethical problems, you know, prescribing a very strong opioid off-label. Other times they would try to find uh, doctors that were beleaguered or fit a certain profile that would, that would make them feel that they were more susceptible to this type of Bribery. John shares a revelation about a whistleblower complaint that was filed in Texas in 2012 that outlined all of the misleading sales practices that ultimately led to so much loss of life from subsis. 2012 whistleblower complaint laid out the whole plan, you know, to go after these doctors. He names Berlikoff. He says exactly what's going to happen going to happen, and it was quite extensive, his whistleblower complaint. But uh, the U.S. Uh, attorney down there decided not to intervene. And as a result, hundreds of uh, people died, and others became hopelessly addicted. While many of the off-label prescriptions for subsis were declined by insurance companies, John outlines how INSYS took matters into their own hands. Yeah, they created a uh, part authorization uh, center, uh, basically a, 
a phone room uh, in Phoenix, and uh, that's where uh, all these uh, you know prescriptions from these doctors would come through, and they would handle the insurance end of it. And they had no problem, according to court documents, lying to these insurance companies. They would sometimes pretend to be at the doctor's office, whatever it took to get these uh, prescriptions uh, paid for by by insurance companies or, or Medicaid and Medicare. Next, I pivot to Pat Beal, who has covered Purdue Pharma extensively for the Palm Beach Post. Listening to John, I cannot imagine Richard Sackler ever donning purple tights and dancing, you know, <laughs> even uh, uh, even for a very enthusiastic group of doctors. It almost sounds, um, it almost sounds kind of um, not conservative is the word that I want to use, but certainly not as colorful as, you know, what INSYS was apparently engaging in. It's every bit as devastating. Pat shares her thoughts on the legacy of Purdue Pharma in prescribing practices. Well, you know, I I hardly know where to start, but I, I think the bottom line with Purdue is that when it um, put OxyContin out for sale, um, they knew from, Purdue knew from focus groups of physicians to, to prescribe such a powerful opioid for anything other than cancer or end-of-life pain. And they also knew that their market had to be broader than that. And so really what Purdue had to do in order to sell OxyContin was to make opioid treatment for pain more acceptable by doctors, um, any opioid at all. And I think more than OxyContin itself, that is really Purdue's legacy in this issue or in this crisis, is that they fundamentally revised how we think about pain treatment today. And when you look at the companies that have come after and you look at, you know, the, um, the many, many drugs, of course, the transition to heroin that, come, that has come after, but particularly physicians prescribing practices, I mean, that's, that's going to be very, very hard to, um, to uh, unroll or unring the bell, or I was just looking over a few of my notes, and and really, even I think it was the year that OxyContin was introduced, the American Pain Society had come out with some recommendations on more aggressive pain treatment. Um, there was another association, another nonprofit association. That, um, that followed suit. Um, both of them had connections with Purdue Pharma. And ultimately, these recommendations started trickling down. They trickled down into the, um, uh, the Federation of State Medical Boards so that, so that doctors were continually getting the message that if you do not prescribe opiates for pain, you might actually be committing um, some form of malpractice. And in fact, the Federation of Medical Boards um, had suggested that you could be punished if you did not, in fact, or you could be sanctioned if you weren't prescribing aggressively for pain. And so there was an entire cultural shift. I was sharing earlier 
that I have I have a relative. She was uh, in the hospital for a somewhat minor issue, but she was overnight. She was staying there overnight, and at one point, she you know she had some discomfort. She rang the nurse and she asked the nurse um, for a couple of Tylenol. And the nurse brought her Percocet. And I think that is just, you know, an excellent example of how far we have come in terms of what we are willing to do to alleviate pain um, by using opioids and, uh, you know, really just bringing out the big guns when sometimes a fly swatter would be more appropriate. Next, we talk about how Purdue Pharma distorted the view of addiction in America. That was made possible only because there were uh, dramatic distortions of known science about the addictive qualities of opioids. I mean, sure, you know, that would be, opioids would be a great, you know, first-line option if they're not addictive, you know, and of course, that's the problem, and that was where uh, this profound distortion of known science about addiction uh, was taking place. I'm sure you're familiar with the Porter Jiggs letter, where there was a paragraph in the New England found significant levels of addiction in individuals treated in this particular, um, you know, this particular type of, I believe it was a hospital. And um, and so what you know Purdue did was seize on that, and and it taught you know it taught its the salespeople to go around the country and say, look, look, there's been this formal study that shows that addiction is rare, less than one percent of people taking opioids are going to become addicted, um, and and of course that's just not true. And you mentioned lexicon, the other lexicon, the other word that really popped up and has persisted is pseudo-addiction. And pseudo-addiction is the idea that if you are a doctor and you're prescribing someone uh, highly addictive opioids and they start exhibiting classic um, symptoms of being addicted, uh, they might um, lie to you in order to get an extra prescription or they might go doctor shopping or they might seem desperate. And pseudo-addiction taught, well, that's not really addiction. It just means that their pain is not being adequately addressed and you need to give them more drugs. And and that one is actually, that particular phrase remains enshrined in Florida administrative law in terms of how physicians should treat pain. Now, Pat, didn't they also kind of invent the term breakthrough pain? You know, I, I think that's interesting. I really don't know uh, the origins of that particular phrase, but I do know that Purdue, from some very early marketing uh, marketing materials, was um, was concerned about breakthrough pain. They were very aware of breakthrough pain. Uh, they knew, for instance, that people might be taking OxyContin as directed for 12 hours, but that some people were actually going to start getting so-called breakthrough pain before that 12. And they had, you know, they had a marketing solution for that, which was more OxyContin. Yeah, that was always the solution. More drugs. More drugs, yes. 
While OxyContin was approved by the FDA, noting the safety of its time-release formulation, the inconsistency of its release in the system turned out to be very dangerous. The problem with that is that, um, you know, you want to be able to control the ups and downs. Um, You don't want to have somebody have a rush of oxycodone and and then maybe six or eight hours later it has tapered off to the degree that you're going to have, you know, um, the equivalent of a physiological downer. For one thing, that only doesn't pave the way for a patient asking for more drugs more often, which is kind of a, you know, a recipe for disaster. It also, you know, it also is, um, you know, very consistent with, um, you know, addictive, you know, uh, feeding an addiction and fueling an addiction. You know, we really don't know how many people in the United States might have some vulnerability to addiction. You know, we can guess. We don't know how many. So when you give somebody, when you take a highly addictive drug, you don't know if you're going to be among, you know, the folks who may have a tendency to addiction. So you can you can see how giving somebody uh, initially, which is a highly addictive drug, and not only a highly addictive drug, but one that is going to lead to more ups and more downs. Um, well, yeah. Well, we've seen what happened. We and, we are living with the results. And you don't have to be. Uh an addict uh, to get physically addicted to OxyContin. I mean, right? Correct? I mean, it, within like a week, if you're taking high doses of it, you're going to have a physical addiction to that drug. Well, I think that, you know, I think, um, you know, there are all kinds of drugs where you can have a physiological response when you go off of them, you know, abruptly. And certainly this was one of them. But, you know, I mean, Oxy, you know, the misunderstandings and the, um, you know, the outright fraud, according to the 2007 Department of Justice case that was involved with this was was really kind of extraordinary, though. Um, And, you know, we know that that, uh, being written for doses to be taken every eight hours and the Food and Drug Administration knew that this was a problem as early as 2004. And um, uh, Richard Blumenthal, then the Attorney General for Connecticut, wanted um, the FDA to force Purdue to put a warning on the label that would that would address this issue of you know it may run out pretty quickly, that could be a problem. And the FDA said, uh, well, they just said no. Amazing. They also um, kind of skewed the definition of addiction. They falsely implied that addiction requires that patients get high, and they falsely promised that patients would not become uh, addicted if they took opioids as they were prescribed. Yeah, and you know that was uh, that that you know that line of thought only addicts will get addicted was, you know, was certainly a selling point when they were talking to physicians. But I do think that the ground had been made more fertile by, um, you know, by Purdue Pharma and its, uh, its marketing about what addiction was and what it wasn't and what somebody who was addicted might look like. 
at one point, Purdue, I believe, had sent out some uh, paperwork um, to physicians saying, okay, um, this is how you know if somebody might be susceptible to addiction or is, or is using or is using drugs inappropriately, using opioids inappropriately. And one of the things they had in there was a picture of somebody with needle marks. Well, people who were initially abusing Oxy were taking it orally or they were snorting it. They weren't shooting it up at that point. Not most of them. I read someplace that when the FDA actually approved OxyContin, they didn't realize that it could be crushed and you know done intravenously. They didn't know that. Well, you know, that's what they say. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I've read some of those documents, and um, and and there were a couple of things that I think. Uh, well, there are many things interesting about the FDA and OxyContin, and and I believe there have already been gallons of ink used to write stories and entire forests that were felled to you know to get that on paper. But, um, you know, even the label, the FDA-approved label was a problem, and it warned that if oxy were broken, crushed, or chewed, a rapid dose of the drug would follow. And, and you know, to anyone who is seeking a potent high, I mean, that's, that's like an instruction manual. And so that went out the door. And years later, I believe this, they initially made these comments before a congressional committee uh, the FDA would say it had no idea that that label would lead anyone to crush and then snort or inject the drug. And, you know, I mean, maybe people are that naive. You know, John and I are sitting here reporting about the opioid epidemic from really what could be its South Florida epicenter. And so maybe... You know, we look at these things and say, oh, of course that doesn't make sense. Maybe if you're in Washington, maybe, you know, maybe that didn't occur to you. What do you think, John? I can tell you for, for sure that it was, I mean, in the early 2000s, that was already out. Like, that yeah. news was out, you know, among yeah. among the, the street users. Yeah. So yeah. Sister Beth Davies talks about a, uh, a high school where in 1997 – one of the kids was found snorting OxyContin already, 1997, that early. Wow, that's pretty, that's pretty early. Well, you know, the thing about, you know, Sister Beth, first of all, is just wonderful. And if you, you know, not to flog the Palm Beach Post, but if you get a chance to look at her, um, uh, her taped conversation about OxyContin and um, Pennington Gap, where she set up shop to um, help people with addiction. Uh, it's, it's, it's really revealing. But, you know, she had, yeah, 1997, they knew they had a problem almost immediately. And she said that she had never heard of OxyContin, and she said she called the, um, uh, the local pharmacist, and she says, you know, you know, Greg, I mean, what are these OCs, you know, what, what are these oxys? And he said, and he said, and I'm going to quote this, mark my words, this will be the worst disaster that has ever come upon Lee County. They are marketing as non-addicting. It is going to be one of the most addictive drugs we have on the market. It's going to destroy us. And that was actually a very, very accurate prediction. Pennington Gap was ravaged by OxyContin. 
This concludes part one of our two-part series, a discussion with the Palm Beach Post reporters covering the opioid epidemic and the legacy of deceptive sales practices established by Purdue Pharma and perpetuated by other pharmaceutical companies such as Insys Therapeutics. Please join us next time for part two in this series. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.